I feel a distinct burden and my responsibility to preach the Bible. There are some Sundays, however, where that burden feels a little bit more acute, and this is one of those Sundays for two reasons. First of all, and I'll do these in ranked order, first of all, this is an unsettling time in our culture. And also, we have recently, as a newly combined church, experienced what it's like to go through uncertain times as we've come together. So we know what it feels like to to go through periods of time or to be in the midst of a period of time that feels a little bit shaky. Even more importantly, the reason I feel such an acute burden at times, and particularly today, is that this is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Now, a pastor could get up and say that to you every Sunday so your ears perk up. But I really do mean it this week. For you theological nerds like me, I include myself in that category, I love to just sit down over a hot drink. I don't drink coffee, so tea, you can join me, grab your expensive coffee. Uh, I love to sit down and just talk about the Bible. It's, it's thrilling for me. It's super fun. I don't like to debate about it. I went through seminary. That cured me of that. But I love the Bible, and our church loves the Bible. It's one of the reasons why we love you so much, because you have an expectation that your elders will teach you the Scriptures, and what a privilege it is to be a part of a church like that. I have a lot of friends who pastor churches around the country, and a lot of them can't say that, so it's a privilege. But this truly is one of the most important passages in all the Scripture, and in it, for us theological nerds, we find really high Christology, the doctrine of Christ. We find clear cosmology, an explanation of how the world got here and why it is like it is. And these two things that burden me this morning, living in a, in a culture right now that feels shaky and uncertain, we never get out of election cycles now, do we? It used to be, even when I was a kid, that the election cycle didn't really kick off, at least in the public's imagination until the year of an election. Now it never stops. We live in a culture that feels shaky and uncertain, divided, and sometimes, frankly, even hostile. But we are going to study together today a passage of Scripture that presents to us the person and work of Christ in detail. And that should, for His people, lead us to the conclusion that no matter how shaky, uncertain, or even hostile our setting appears to be, that we, the people of God, need not be afraid. We don't have to feel shaken. We don't have to fear the future. Fearful people often do unhealthy things. 
searching for answers in their own strength, maneuvering and cajoling to get things done, thinking somehow foolishly that they can control the future and make everything okay. But my friends, most of us have been around long enough to know that that is a pipe dream, it is an illusion. Paul wrote to a church in ancient Colossae that wasn't just going to be eventually shaken by an earthquake, quake, as our brother Dave said to us earlier, but by bad doctrine. It was probably some mixture of, of Jewish legalism mixed together with some sort of pagan mythical folklore. And this, this synthesis of these bad teachings had, had infiltrated the church in some way or another. We have the same dangers around us today. The danger of legalism, thinking somehow that by our own efforts we can buy God off, appease Him, make Him like us. Likewise, we add to the gospel if we aren't careful by believing that Jesus is necessary for our salvation, for, for our justification, but somehow thinking that something else has to be added to it, that an additional experience added to Jesus will bring us the satisfaction and rest, wholeness that we crave. And we, like the Colossians, 20 centuries ago, are often tricked, deluded by the notion that Jesus is not sufficient for life, both eternal and in the here and now. And so this fundamental question is posed by us and others all of the time. What will give me hope now and for eternity? In particular, whenever we live in this world which is constantly, seemingly shaken, and we ourselves who live in it feel threatened, unstable. Paul writes for us in Colossians 1, 15-20, that Jesus is the fullness of God. We lack nothing and our total confidence can rest in Him, that, that we can bank on Him in an uncertain world because He is all that we need. This text teaches us that we were made by Jesus. We were made for Jesus. And Jesus takes care of us every moment. Taking care of our most fundamental need, and that is our separation from God. He died to take the punishment that we deserved. He rose again from the grave to ensure our own resurrection in the future that we might live with and for God now and for forever. Jesus has taken care of all of our needs, and it does us well, brothers and sisters, to rehearse these truths 
over and over again, for we are constantly under the specter, the shadow, the threat of an unstable world and being tricked into believing that we need something else to take care of our future. And so I say to you, my equally fearful friends, let us study what Jesus has done for us and who He is, and let us find hope this morning. The first thing we will find, and this is really the overarching thought of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, is this. Jesus Christ is our all-sufficient hope. Let us read now together God's Word, and may the Holy Spirit convince us of this truth. He, Jesus, Colossians 1.15 is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. May God bless to us the reading of His holy word. We, for the past few weeks, have been studying Paul's letter to the Colossian church, verse by verse. We will continue today and do so through the end of the letter. Paul has taken the first 14 verses of this letter to the Colossians and basically introduced himself formally and oriented himself to them so they could have this sort of metaphorical discussion. He wants them to know how he feels about them. He had not been directly responsible for the planting of this church, but had led a man named Epaphras to faith in Jesus who had gone back to his home city of Colossae and planted this church. It was a good church. Paul had affirmed them in the prior verses. And last week, as we discovered in verses 9 through 14, had told them what he prayed for them. And in particular, he prayed that they would know the will of God, which equals, which is, that they would worship God with all that they are. And then he explained to them what worship would look like practically. And he ended the section from last week in verses 13 and 14 by assuring them of their domain transfer, that they had been transferred from the domain of darkness, a life which led to futility and judgment, into a life of certain hope, for they now dwelt in the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. So, Paul has been encouraging them, telling them what he prayed on their behalf, and giving them assurance. He will go on from these verses, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, to tell them what he wants for them. In verse 22 of chapter 1, he says that they have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order that they might be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. And he wants them to continue steadfast in the faith, 
Later on in chapter 2, he wants them to walk by faith in the same gospel that they had received. He wants them to understand, chapter 2, verse 10, that they had been filled in the one who is the fullness of God. Therefore, they lack nothing. And then he will take the latter two chapters of the letter, beginning in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, and tell them to look to Jesus and be the new creation that they were being created to be. And right in the middle of all this, this hinge point, so to speak, of the letter is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. This is the beating heart of this letter. It is the doctrinal core of the letter. For in it we find Paul's thesis. That Jesus is preeminent in creation. Jesus is preeminent in redemption. And He is the very fullness of God in both. And if He is the fullness of God in the cosmos and creation, and He is the fullness of God in redemption as the crucified and resurrected Lord, and we've been filled in Him who is the fullness of God, the question is, what do we lack? And the answer is, not a thing. So here is the doctrinal core, the hinge point of the letter where Paul will draw all of his implications from as to how the Colossian church is to live. Verses 15 through 17 teach us this thought. He, Jesus, created and sustains all things. We hear here in verse 15, and we will find it again in verse 18, that Jesus is the firstborn. This does not mean that Jesus was created. This term in the original language in Greek means something more like first in rank, one who existed before, one who has total priority and total supremacy. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we're pretty familiar with this verse. The Bible begins with this thought, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He who was uncreated, he who has always been from eternity past and always will be, from whom all things spring, spoke the world into existence. And if we put this together with what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus was God's agent of creation. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, created all things, everything that we see, including you and me. John the Apostle goes a bit further in verses 1 through 3 in the introduction of his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is no equivocation here, there is no waffling, there is no confusion. Jesus is equal to God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He will go on later 
at the end of his introduction in his gospel to say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And hear these words. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. God had revealed Himself to His people through word and through wonder. But in the coming of Christ, when He took on flesh, God was personified among us, and we saw what He was like. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He was spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sounds a whole lot like Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The wonder, perhaps, for us in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 17 in particular, is that Jesus didn't just make all things, Jesus sustains all things, and all things, including you and me, were made for Jesus. Quite literally in the original language, it could be read, all things were made unto Jesus. He is the trajectory toward which all things are pointed. This means that we don't have to fear entropy. The scientific truth that if not held together, all things will fly apart. So one of the great wonders of the universe is that the atoms that make up the cosmos, including our very bodies, are held together in mysterious suspension. Who does that? Who sends the rains upon the earth? Who put the moon in space at just the right distance to control our tides? Who put the sun at just the right distance so that it could warm by radiation our planet but not burn us up? Who gave us the beauty of the changing of the seasons? Who gave us the wonder of marriage and childbirth and raising families? Who gave us mountain vistas? Who holds all things together whenever we are concerned that all things are falling apart? My friends, it is Jesus. And Paul writes to the Colossian church to encourage them that they don't have to fear entropy. They don't have to fear that everything is going to fall apart. It feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? Those of you who have been through a broken marriage, you know what it feels like to have your world come down. Those of you who have lost a spouse or a child to death have felt 
what it feels like to almost come apart. You have been through church splits. Too many of us have. We have felt what it looks like to pour our lives into something and to feel that dream fall apart. We see it in our country all the time. What if our government were to get messy? Nervous laughter. It's not a what if, right? It's constant. God sets up and puts down kings. More accurately, according to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Jesus sets up and puts down kings. This is why he could withstand the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. This is why he did not tremble before Pilate or Herod. This is why the apostles after him were willing to lay their lives down in death because Caesar was not their king, Jesus was. Jesus sets up and puts down kings. Nebuchadnezzar is a cautionary tale as we think back into the Old Testament. The entire book of Daniel, frankly, is. God reveals through His prophet that entire empires like Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, they're all under His complete control. But Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king at the beginning of the letter, that God used in His fury and in His paganism to punish Israel for her sin is lifted up in his pride, goes out and surveys his empire, and the text tells us was impressed with all that he had accomplished. Remember the story? As soon he, as he was so vaunted in his opinion of himself, what did God do? He turned him into some sort of manimal. His nails grew like some sort of creature, and his hair grew long, and he foraged around in the prairie and it was not until after a season that he lifted his eyes to heaven and repented of his great arrogance that God restored him to his kingdom. Jesus is in control of all things. And so we don't have to be afraid. Nor do we have to have a misplaced confidence in any human leader. It's appropriate in the economy of the church to follow leadership. We have good leaders here, but your leaders aren't your hope because we will inevitably fail you because we are made of clay like you. Presidents and senators and congressmen and women, judges, we have seen throughout human history that they are fallible and they will fail us. We don't have to be afraid of them when they are unjust, and we don't have to put misplaced trust in them when they think that they're going to fix things. Frankly, no leader is permitted to eclipse Jesus as their object of affection and adoration. When pastors try to do that, when presidents try to do that, Jesus won't permit it, and He'll put them down. Jesus, my friends, is our only hope and even when the world seems to be falling apart, we can have total confidence in Him. So, because Jesus created and sustains all things, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, 
Let us trust and worship Him alone. That's the takeaway from these first few verses. Because Jesus Christ created and sustains all things, let us trust and worship Him alone. We're always looking for a Savior. We can't help it. We were made to be that way. We do this in relation to our health, finding the next good doctor who can give us the right answers, finding the next great diet. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've been on diets in the past or are right now. How many different diets uh, are in the West right now? A land like ours where there's like ubiquitous access to all things. We just have the next new diet all the time. We rename it all the time, but it's some version of the one that came before. We're looking for the next thing to make us thin, attractive, or healthy. In fact, we have gotten to the point that we have supermarkets that are so expensive that we go into them groaning, but we know that if we don't go to said supermarket, that somehow the additives in the food are going to kill us and we're going to die tomorrow. We're a little bit nuts. We look for saviors in regard to wealth and possessions. We think that the next thing that we buy, the next toy, another comma to our bottom line will give us the hope that we need. And then when those things are shaken, we find that our hope itself is shaken. Don't you find that even whenever you buy things that pretty quickly you see them begin to crumble and fall apart? And those are little cautionary reminders that those things are not our hope. We have commented today on politics, but we see it here all the time. And let me just say this as we're getting ready to enter into the real um, furor of an upcoming election. Just be still, okay? Be still in your social media. Be still in your interpersonal conversations. Be still in who you're putting your trust in. It has been worse before, whether you believe it to be so or not. Jesus has always taken care of His people, and He always will. And when you're still, and when you're not in a frenzy, you communicate something to each other, and you communicate something to your community. When you are not in a frenzy, when everyone else is, you are saying something, sometimes by not even saying it. And that is that you're not freaked out because your hope is not in anything else. Your hope is in Jesus. And that might just give you an opportunity to talk about how great and how faithful He is. So don't go crazy. Let's all put our hands up. We're not going to go crazy over the next 15 months. Or Okay, good. All right. 13 months. Jesus is in charge of creation, and He actually uses His care and providence over creation to comfort His people. We find this in Mark 4. But He was in the stern, while a storm is going on, asleep on the cushion. And they woke Him, His disciples did, and said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It was a bad storm. And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
No one else can come close to doing that. Our meteorologists on our local news station at best are guessing, right? But Jesus not only can predict, He can providentially control. So you don't have to be afraid. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Philippians chapter 2. Not only can we have confidence that we don't have to be afraid because Jesus is in control, this text, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, also points us to the one who should receive all worship. You're familiar with these verses, beginning in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Paul encourages the Philippian believers to have this mind among them, which is theirs in Christ Jesus. Who though he, Christ Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with thing a thing to be grasped or, or grabbed onto or pursued, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's Paul's conclusion. Therefore, God, verse 9, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So our response to Colossians 1, 15-17 is trust and worship. We trust the one who has made and sustains all things, who holds us together. And we worship Him alone, for if He alone can do that and does do that, who else should we worship? This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so I say to you, my friends, He who created and sustains all things is worthy of our trust and our worship alone. The next thing that we learn in verses 18 through 20 is that not only did He create and sustain all things, He reconciled and restored His people. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 5. Another important passage in Paul's theology. He has gone through the beginning of his letter to the Roman church by indicting all under sin, but by saying that Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place, and if we will put our faith in Him and Him alone, not mixed with self-righteousness and, and personal effort, that we will be justified, declared, declared righteous in Christ. It has always been this way, Romans chapter 4, before Abraham himself was justified by faith and not by works. Then in chapters 5 through 8, Paul outlines the implications of what it means to have come back to God through Christ. And in chapter 5, he begins with reconciliation. Look in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even to die, but God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, and notice the progression, we were weak, we were sinners, according to verse 10, now we're enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Through the death and through the resurrected life of Jesus, we who were weak, we who were sinful, transgressors, and we who were the very enemies of God have been brought back to God into a peaceful, restored relationship. And that is what Paul is teaching us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. That Jesus is not just first in rank, has priority and supremacy in creation, but also in the redemption of His people, the church. And in particular here, beginning in verse 18, Paul says that He is the firstborn, the beginning, from the dead. Now, Jesus was not the first one brought back to life from death. Jesus Himself raised a couple of people from the dead. What this means is Jesus' personal resurrection is the foundation for the resurrection of all. For if you remember, even in John 11, when he, rose Lazarus from the, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he says to Lazarus' family, I am the resurrection and the life. Even his raising of others from the dead was predicated upon his powerful resurrection to come. Our resurrection in the future For if Jesus does not come back in our lifetime, we will all die. But our resurrection in the future, where our eternal souls are joined back to perfected bodies so that we can enjoy God and one another for eternity, all of this is predicated upon the fact that Jesus is the supreme one raised from the dead who gives hope to us all that death has been conquered. We all do fear death. None of us can help it. But the truth of the matter is that death will not have the final word. Jesus has already spoken the final word through His death and through His resurrection. Let us be careful that we emphasize not only the death of Jesus who atoned for our sins, but also the resurrection of Jesus, which is the foundation of our hope. If you're looking for something to study because you're a little confused and listless right now in your personal time with God, go through the book of Acts and notice how often the emphasis is in the apostles' preaching upon the resurrection and how this gave them confidence and hope in an uncertain and unstable world. Jesus is the one who reconciles us and restores us to God. These are some wonderful verses in Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 17. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. That's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? He Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. How did God's covenant people come back to Him in a reconciled relationship? The Jews. 
to Jesus, who was their peace. How did we Gentiles, and it's hard for us to really feel the import of what Paul was saying to this early church in Ephesus that was made up of Jews and Gentiles, which were often hostile to each other. How were they brought back to God through Jesus, who was their peace? So, Jesus reconciles and restores His people to God, no longer weak, no longer sinners, no longer enemies, restored and reconciled by Jesus. And what's the takeaway from this? Let us rest and proclaim Him alone. If Jesus created and sustains all things, verses 15 through 17, we should respond with trust and worship. If Jesus reconciled and restores His people, we should respond with rest and proclamation. One of my favorite little sections, often obscured because it's the end of a letter, but in Galatians chapter 6, verses 17 through 18, Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. I can just see him kind of doing that. I don't know if ancient Jewish rabbis did that, but from now on, let, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Not if, but when I sin. Not if, but when our sin affects each other, our response should be, I'm not troubled. Because my hope is not in my performance. And I'm not overcome and I'm not overwhelmed when your performance doesn't measure up either. What, what should mark us as the people of Christ? One of my favorite things practically about our merger is that every Sunday when, when I preach, I, I get to stand sort of in front of this cross. It's humbling. That's my hope. My hope's in Jesus. I'm just as sinful, probably more so than a whole lot of you. My hope's in Jesus. I'm going to preach some terrible sermons. I'm going to make some bad leadership decisions. I'm an imperfect husband. I'm an imperfect father. You will find over time plenty of things to be disappointed in me about. That, that's life together, right? We will find plenty of reasons to be disappointed in each other. I will not measure up. Neither will you. But my friends, let us be willing to say, I'm not troubled. I, I repent, right? I repent from my sin. I make progress as a pastor and as a husband and a father and all kinds of other ways. But my hope is not in my perfection. My hope is in Jesus. And so sometimes the best thing that we can say to each other is, don't be troubled. You bear in your body the mark of Jesus. So, so this is rest. It's not being overcome or overwhelmed when I or others fail. But not only should I live with such rest, I should proclaim the good news, this hope, so that others might find it as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All of us. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this looks a whole like, 
like you and me resting in the the amazing, unfathomable love of God, the good news of Christ, which we still underestimate, and being so overwhelmed with such grace that we cannot help but share it with other people. That's why we're here, right? We're not here to be comfortable. We're not here to be the morality club. We are here to be a proclamational church making this good news which seems almost too good to be true. If, if you don't feel that, if I don't feel that about the gospel, we don't get it. It sounds too good to be true. And it's our job to make that known. So, we, to our, we are to rest and, and trust and worship Jesus alone, and then we are to rest and proclaim Him alone. This is what Paul is saying to us in Colossians 1, 15-20. He wants the Colossian believers to understand all of their privileges in Christ. He wants them to understand that they don't have to be worried about adding to the gospel. There's nothing else that can give them hope. Jesus has accomplished all that they need, and in Him they find their fullness. I'm going to put a graphic up on the screen, and then we'll close with this. This is a painting which was commissioned by Scotty Smith, who was a Presbyterian pastor down in Nashville for his church, and it's called God's Story. I'm not sure how well you can see it. You can Google it. God's Story. The artist's name is David Arms. Some of you have this in your homes. It's a four-panel look at the history of humanity. Um, the first, and you can't really see the, the little verbiage tags, there's, there's a little tag hanging in each of the four panels. The first tag is life. This represents creation, where God made all things and they were good. You notice that the tree there is flourishing, there's fruit for the birds and the people to eat. The next panel is dark. The foliage on the tree has been stripped away. The tree itself is postured lower than the first one, and rather than Songbirds, you have ravens, uh, sort of the specter of death. One is looking back at the fall, and one is curiously looking forward, but, but this tag is lost. This is the fall. The third panel, the tag is love. You notice that the foliage is restored. It's a little higher than the tree before in the panel for the fall. In the middle of that tree is a cross. There is an egg, which represents that life is going to come surprisingly. There's butterflies, which demonstrate transformation from caterpillar to this beautiful winged insect, which shows that God takes things and transforms them. And then the last panel, the fourth panel, um, is once again called life. This is the restoration. This is what we look forward to. There's more fruit than there was even in the first panel at creation. The birds are back. The tree is higher and fuller, and the panel itself is brighter. What, what God is saying through Paul's pen in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, is that Jesus made all things. But because of sin, restoration was needed. And Jesus came back to recreate, to restore. And if Jesus made all things and holds all things together, and if Jesus then came into our world as a real man, and died in our place, and rose again in power and victory, and himself is the fullness of God, and assures us not only of his power over creation, but the hope of recreation, what do we lack? 
And the answer, my friends, is nothing. May God be pleased to secure us to himself. May we hope in Jesus Christ alone. Let us trust and worship him and let us rest in and proclaim him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now by your spirit, confirm these truths to our heart. You are in control of all things. You made all things and you hold all things, including us together. But you are not just creator, you are recreator. You are the one who promises us the hope of the life to come, which is even better than the life that we now know. So Lord Jesus, let us find our hope in nothing else. Let us be very vigilant and wary about anything that offers us life or hope. Instead, may we find our hope in you alone. May we, may we substitute no saviors. And in doing so, may our trust and worship be directed toward you. May we rest in you, and may we make your good better than good news known. We pray that you will do all this and more for your glory and for the joy of many. Amen.